Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of an, an overview of the fivefold ministry. Um, and I'm I'm doing this to to for people that are not that familiar. I'm going to give some of my take on fivefold ministry stuff. Um, if you've never heard that term, um, this is a good place for you to start because I'll do a basic overview of it. Um, but also talk about some, how to avoid some of the the pitfalls and the dangers that I see um, when we're talking about this particular topic. Okay. Um, before we jump into that, though, I do want to do like a, a news segment. What I'm going to try and do every single episode from here on out is to give a little bit of commentary on what's going on in the news. If there's something that's that's happening, if nothing's happening, then. I won't necessarily feel obligated, but generally speaking, I will try and touch on something. So um, the big news is that Trump has essentially won the Republican nominee for the 2024 race. Um, Vivek has dropped out of the race. DeSantis has dropped out of the race. Um, last I checked, Haley was still in it. Um, but it really looks like Trump is, is going to be the one. Um, which was always the most likely outcome. Um, I think one of the things that you see with Trump is that, you know, he went from, he started to attack Vivek. Um, he's been attacking DeSantis consistently. Um, and then, you know, now he's talking very nicely about them. <laughs> relatively nice. And, you know, I think it's important that we understand this dynamic about Trump. Okay. This is who Trump has always been. If you're opposing him or in his way, he will not hesitate to attack you. And if you're supporting him, he will say all sorts of wonderful things about you. And that's how it works for him. And it's always worked like that for him. Um, so you really, you know, he's not a Christian. <laughs> he certainly doesn't act like a Christian, okay? I mean, he get, he will attack and he he will attack viciously. Right, and he will ridicule, and he will do all these things that you know, as Christians, that we should not do. Okay, um, and he's he's he doesn't have integrity in that sense, right? Like as a, as a Christian, I try and speak well about people. I try and honor people, even when I point out their weaknesses. I try and speak about them in an honoring way. That's not Trump's mo. That's not how he rolls. So, um, you know, sometimes people get surprised that he attacks you know, certain people so viciously and stuff like that. Um, but honestly, I think at this point we understand, have a good sense of, you know, who he is and, and what he does. And this is, I would say, is one of his weaknesses that he um, is is totally willing to attack people that five minutes ago he was speaking really well of. And it works the other way also, right? He might be attacking somebody viciously five minutes ago and now he's talking about how great they are. <laughs> okay, that is Trump. In a nutshell, that's how the man works. And um, and what you should understand is because you know it's he's trying to accomplish his agenda. That's what he cares about, right? And he is totally willing to offend people or to speak poorly about them to accomplish that agenda. So that's why you know you can't really take his praise too seriously. Okay, when Trump is praising somebody, that means he's supporting what they what he wants to do. <laughs> okay, he uses people. All right, that's who Trump is. And to be fair, like. That is how most politicians work, okay? Um, I've said this in the past, but politicians, 
generally speaking, are people of charisma, right? They're trying to get you to like them, so they hide their negative aspects and they spin things so what they really think doesn't sound so bad or they don't or they refuse to talk about it at all because you know they're trying to accomplish an agenda so it, it, trump to me just seems much more blatant and you know crude <laughs> it's like he's not as sophisticated as before it, he doesn't strike me as a sophisticated liar okay um i find that somewhat refreshing okay <laughs> rather than you know it, it rather than the person who you know, pretends to really like you and, you know, says, oh man, you know, we're such good friends <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And then secretly in the back, they're speaking bad about you, right? And the same dynamic is going on, but that person is a much more sophisticated deceiver and manipulator, right? And by and large, most politicians are kind of like that. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to judge all politicians because I'm sure that there are some that are not. I'm just saying that particular skill is effective is is very effective in politics, right? You you can go farther with that type of of skill, of that type of manipulation and deceitfulness in politics, and that's why you know, it tends to draw those types of people and because they can get power that way, right? <laughs> okay. Um so I say that to say we should not necessarily be surprised, but this is part of the reason why people kind of like Trump in that, you know, his manipulation is not so sophisticated. Right? Like, I get what he's trying to do, right? When he's talking bad about Vivek, I know that's not necessarily because he, like, you know, hates Vivek or, you know, the way the media puts it, oh, they would immediately jump to, oh, he's racist just because Vivek is any, you know, it, it's not anything like that, right? No, it's it's that he want, he's planning to beat Vivek in the primary. So any sense of danger that he feel he felt from Vivek he's going to start to attack him, okay? I expected that, even though Vivek was very careful. Vivek almost never attacked Trump and always spoke very well of him. And I think that was also calculated, too, because he didn't want to offend the Trump voters. He, he, was, he was really running as the alternative to Trump um, in case something happened to Trump, right? In case, you know, he went to jail and couldn't run or something like that. Then, you know, the field would have opened up hugely. Um, and Vivek was kind of running as Trump Jr., right? And... Um, so, you know, we should understand these types of things when we're looking at politicians, okay? The the politicians that, you know, I'm, you know, I, I remember when Obama um, was running, he was hugely popular, and, and the press only, you know, said really amazing things about him, you know? Um, but that, it's always, you know, he's a very sophisticated charmer, okay? So you have to try and see through to what's what's going on. Okay, underneath. And I would say, look, this is not just in politics. Okay, this is not just in politics. People who are charismatic and charming tend to, um, you know, be uh, followed by people. Okay. Um, in a lot of ways, let me put it this way. In a lot of ways, DeSantis is, um, I think, a better leader than Trump. Okay. In a lot of ways, I think DeSantis is a very, is a better leader than Trump. What really hurt DeSantis's campaign, though, was his lack of charm. Okay, he's not a very charming figure. By all accounts, um, he seems like he's a very effective executive. He seems like he's an extremely strong leader, but he's not that charming, right? And Trump, you know, he's very polarizing. He's very charming to the people that like his his brand of charm. And he's not very charming. <laughs> he's, he's, he's very offensive to you know, the people that don't enjoy his brand of charm. Okay, so, you know, um, but I, I say this because 
I do think it's important that we as Christians um, start to, you know, be able to look beyond just charm, okay? Like, certain people have a charismatic quality to them, but charisma is not the same thing as, as you know, true leadership ability and anointing and, and whatnot. And, you know, there's, there's a book, um, a secular book called Good to Great, um, that, you know, it's a very popular leadership book. Was it Collins? I think it was Collins, but I, I can't remember who the author is off the top of my head. You know, what this book did was uh, this team of researchers analyzed um, all the business leaders whose businesses performed very strongly um, over a certain period of time. And they basically looked at the CEOs during that time and they tried to isolate qualities that showed which CEOs were like in the in the highest tier of effectiveness. And they called these leaders level five leaders, okay? And um, the two traits that they found that were essential for level five leaders, they found two of them. They were um, humility and a relentless sense of drive, okay? And um, one of the things the author pointed out that um, was missing was this aspect of charisma, Right, and what he tended to find was that charisma was often overrated as a leadership characteristic, right? And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that dynamic. Okay, um, it was fascinating to me reading that book that you know humility was was so important, but it it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. And what they found in in the highest tier of leaders was that you know the highest tier of leaders they would not take credit for themselves. They would really try to give credit to the people around them. Right, and that's actually really important for a leader because that that's that's humility, right? Humility is truth, right? It's really not about you. Like a phenomenal leader can't do any, much by himself or herself. Okay, um, a phenomenal leader um, is able to see the strengths in others such that they can put them in a position to be super effective in their area of strength. Okay, and that um, and so you know humility is simply recognizing. I have very real weaknesses as a leader, and I need these other leaders. And so if our organization does well and succeeds, it, it, it really is because we have phenomenal leaders, right? It, it's not because I am the, the greatest CEO of all time, <laughs> right? It's because um, really I'm blessed with amazing leaders around me, okay? That quality of humility... It's highly correlated with strong performance in an organization, okay? So that's one. And then the drive aspect. Um, but I, I say that because DeSantis, I think, really fit a lot of those characteristics as I looked at it. You know, I'm very hopeful in the future. Like Vivek and DeSantis, to me, are both very strong potential leaders for the future. I do still think that Trump um, is the guy for the hour because so much of the, of the national apparatus is still in control of the leftists, and that's why you know Trump. Trump is going to get raked over the coals again in 2024. We saw we saw them go all out in 2016, and and even more so in 2020. Right? They just just nonstop attacks on Trump, and Trump. I think is this is Trump's great strength. He thrives. I don't want to say. I, well, I you know thrive may be too much, but he does better than anybody else I could imagine in that type of adversarial environment. Okay. That's Trump, Teflon Trump, right? Teflon Don. Right? The the the, you know, you can't hit him with moral, you know. You can't say, well, Trump, you know, 
he's he's an adulterer and that's why you shouldn't vote for him like everybody knows that about trump right trump is not a man of moral integrity okay like whatever attacks you make against his character it's already baked in everybody knows that already about trump and so you know he is kind of uniquely suited to be able to handle this period of time where so much of the national national media and tech apparatus is really going to be arrayed against him okay and so that's why I think, you know, if I was voting today, I probably would vote for Trump, okay? Now, that being said, in the future, I think other leaders would be better suited. And I'm very hopeful that DeSantis and Vivek um, will be strong, long-term leaders um, on the conservative side. And I've said before, I do think we are headed for, a, we're balancing out right now, meaning the, the power of the left is in decline right now. The power of the right is in ascendance. Um, and so we need leaders that will not take us way too far to the right. Okay, um, I I think I think Vivek and, and DeSantis could be great long-term leaders. I mean, we're going to see, and, and surely more people will arise in the future. But what what we've really seen the Trump era, what it's done is it has really destroyed the power of those establishment Republican moderates. Okay, like if you just look at the people that the, that we were voting for before, I mean, we're looking at we're calling we're talking about guys like John McCain and Mitt Romney. These guys, I mean, they could be Democrats. They could run as Democrats, <laughs> right? But these were the nominees for the Republican nominees in in the the previous um, elections, right? These were the people that the the Republican Party was was um, coalescing around because they had a better chance to win, right? And what what the Trump era did was it destroyed those candidates. So Nikki Haley is running in that lane right now, right? And you know she doesn't have near enough the support you know to win the Republican nomination. Now what's going to happen is the moderate wing of the Republican Party, the establishment, they're trying everything they can to get Haley to win, right? Because Haley would probably win the general election or has a better chance in many ways of winning the general election. Okay, but she doesn't have a good chance of bringing change. And that's the issue, okay? The issue with guys like George Bush and Mitt Romney and John McCain was even though they had a better chance of winning than people like Ted Cruz who were farther to the right and Rand Paul and these kind of guys who were, you know, farther to the right, is that they have a better chance of winning, but they wouldn't bring substantial change. Because for a, for a, a long era in American politics, it was really the center that was ruling. And the center is is has become very, from my perspective, very far left, actually. Okay? And th that center um, was allowing America to go, to creep increasingly to the left. Okay? And all of these Republicans were allowing that. They were down with that. They're okay with that. Okay? And that's really why the Republican base gave up on them. And they're like, hey, we know that candidates like Mitt Romney and John McCain have a have the best chance of winning the, the general election. We know that. But it's not okay with us that we continue this creep increasingly to the left as a nation. Okay? There has to be leadership that is willing to stand against the underhanded methods of the left. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not intending to make this the entire podcast, but this is going longer than I originally planned. Um, but I just think we should understand these dynamics and why all this is happening, okay? So Trump 
was the force that shook everything, and now the establishment, really, he broke the back of the establishment. And, and to be clear, it's not Trump. It's a spiritual movement, in my opinion, that Trump represents. He's the best representation of that spiritual movement, okay? And um, and th there's it's a new party dynamic, right? When we used to think of blue-collar um, white workers in America, those that was the Democrat base for a long time. Okay, that is now the Republican base. <laughs> okay, there's been a clear sea change that has happened here, right? That that base has consolidated strongly under Trump. Okay, and um, and the big question is whether you know if if let's say Trump wins the election and is president for four more years, whether that base will move to guys like DeSantis and Vivek. I mean, we're we're going to see. We don't know um, because uh, that base is is aligned with Trump. They're not necessarily super conservative in in and of themselves, right? They just it's the same thing. Trump is not that conservative, okay? He's not a super conservative guy. He's just anti. You know, he's kind of on a gut level, he's patriotic, right? He's anti woke in the sense that wokeness is is anti patriotic, and they recognize that, and so they're they're willing to you know fight against that. And um, but as a whole, Trump is not a super conservative, you know, Republican. He's just painted that way by the media that's trying to vilify him as a alt right, white supremacist Nazi type of thing. Okay, but that's not who he is either. Okay, all right. I went a little longer on the new segment that I was planning to, so I'm going to stop there. <laughs> okay, all right. I do want to talk about um, the fivefold ministry. Okay, now the fivefold ministry in some circles, if you're in more charismatic circles, there are people that talk nonstop about the fivefold ministry, right? And I'm talking about like ministries like Bethel. Bethel has been talking about the fivefold ministry for a long time. Um, you know, Jeremiah Johnson talks about it all the time. A lot of these more prophetic type people, you know, in the charismatic world talk a lot about the fivefold ministry. And um, if if you're familiar with all of that and you're, you're really steeped in it, you know, what I'm going to talk about, you'll get, you know, I'll, I'll give some of my takes on some of it. But there's going to be, you know, some review for you if you're super familiar with it. In other, you know, parts of the church, there's not that much talk about it, okay? So I, I want to give my take because I do think it's a helpful thing to understand. It is a biblical thing. Um, but I do think that some of these ministries can go really far um, in an unhealthy direction with some of that stuff, okay? So... All right, without talking about it, you know, let me let me actually get into it. So what is the fivefold ministry? The fivefold ministry is referring specifically to Ephesians 4 and it's talking about the the five offices of leadership in the church, okay? So I'm going to read the passage in Ephesians 4 um, to give us kind of a baseline to to start our discussion about it, okay? So <clears throat> this is from Ephesians 4 and um I'm going to read from verse 7, but I want to give a little bit, bit of context. Paul's talking about our unity in the body of Christ. Okay? So in verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Right? He's talking about our oneness. Okay? And then, but in verse 7, he's going to say, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. In verse 9, it says, What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, 
the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. Okay, so I, I want to get into a little bit of, you know, this entire paradigm that Paul is talking about here. Now, first there's this whole thing about, you know, Christ descending and then ascending, right? Um, I'm going to skip over that there's a, it's a fascinating discussion, right? By descending, does he mean descending to earth or does he mean descending to hell, right? And there's a lot of fascinating theology to unpack there. Um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip over that today to talk about, you know, the, the rest of it, okay? And it's this idea that Christ gave gifts to the church. And who are those gifts? It's these offices, these people, Okay, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Okay, so these are what we call the fivefold ministry. Right, and the purpose of the fivefold ministry, according to Paul in this passage, is to equip the people. All right, that's us, the the saints, to equip the Christians for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So the, the whole idea here is that. Christ gives these gifts, these apostles, these prophets, these pastors, and these teachers, and these evangelists, to equip all the Christians so that we can become mature. How mature? Well, become totally mature is really what Paul is saying here, right? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to describe what that is. So when we are mature, then we won't be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown about by every wind of teaching, right? So the idea is when the body of Christ is mature as it is called to be, then we won't be deceived by all of these different teachings that are out there, right? We won't be tricked, right, by the the, the tricksters who are, who are tricking the church, right? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. That, so Paul's building this metaphor of a body, and the head of the body is, is Jesus, and the rest of the body now fits that perfect head, right? If you can imagine the perfect head of Jesus, you know, in, in his glorified state, right? Um, and it's super glorious. And then the body is all like weak and frail and, <laughs> you know, all beat up and all this kind of stuff. And this is the state of the immature body as it currently exists, okay? But Paul is, is painting a picture of us becoming mature as the body such that we perfectly fit the head, okay? So, and the way he describes it is that that process happens by the fivefold ministers training and teaching, equipping the body such that each part of the body does the work that it's supposed to do, okay? And this is a continuation of his, um, you know, body metaphor. We, we, we saw this metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you're familiar with that chapter, he also uses this body metaphor, and he talks about how this is really in reference to spiritual gifts, about how each part of the body is gifted differently, and the eye cannot say to the foot or the hand, right, I don't need you, 
right? Like each part has to do their part, meaning everybody's gifted with their own spiritual gifts and we need all the parts of the body to to use their gifts if we're going to function like a complete and healthy, mature body, all right? It's the same idea that Paul is giving here, except where he's drawing attention to here in Ephesians 4 is that the these gifts that Jesus gave are these people, right? These apostles and prophets, etc., and they're the ones that are equipping the saints so that we can utilize our gifts, Okay. And um, I've talked about this before on this podcast, but this is a very, you know, I think well understood now um, dynamic in the in the body of Christ where in the past, the way the church has looked has been, you know, you've got like the, the pastor and the pastor is doing the work of ministry and all the, you know, people in the congregation, their job is to receive and basically to help, you know, the pastor do the ministry. So, you know, they give their money to the to the pastor so that the pastor can do more ministry and they bring their friends to church so that they can hear the pastor speak right and um and then they volunteer at church and help out with stuff so that the pastor can you know um reach more people something like that okay and i i would put that in you know the paradigm of kind of the old way of of doing things and to be clear i'm not saying that that way is is terrible I just don't think it's that's the perfect picture of what it's supposed to look like. All right, the picture that we get in Ephesians four is one in which the the leaders of the church are equipping the saints to do the work. Okay, so I think a more mature vision of the church is one where each member of the church is amazing in the sense that they're operating in their gifts. Okay, and I think we see glimpses of that in the scriptures. A good example, like in the early church, what we see is that the apostles were like Jesus. They were doing, you know, all these amazing things that Jesus was doing, um, and the people were amazed by it. Right? Peter's shadow is like healing people. It's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, right? Because because before it was just Jesus doing all these crazy things, but now the apostles are like Jesus, right? It's like there's a bunch of Jesuses walking around, and this is crazy. Um, but then what happens is they, they start to ordain and annoy people like Stephen, right? Stephen or Stephen, who becomes one of the deacons in the early church. And he starts doing amazing miracles and doing amazing things, right? And, um, and, I, and I think that that's the idea. Like, more and more people are starting to access, you know, the supernatural powers of heaven and are starting to become like many Jesuses. And that's really the way it's supposed to be, right? That the apostles are supposed to equip the others, along with the other, you know, fivefold ministers, and then the the normal everyday average Christian who's sitting in church is supposed to become a mini Jesus in the sense that he or she is utilizing their gifts in a mature way that is amazing. Okay, that is amazing. All right, and I want to be careful and and be clear here. I think that any gift that is used in a mature manner is amazing, okay? Um, I'm not just talking about the flashy gifts, all right, like prophecy and, and healing and, you know, miracles and stuff like that. I'm talking about, you know, the uh, the non-flashy gifts. I think that when you see somebody who's really gifted operating in, you know, a, a mature gifting, I think it's impressive, okay? And, um, you know, in some parts of the church, those are the only gifts that are honored, right? Wow, this person is, is, is amazing at administration, 
<laughs> okay, they have an amazing gift of administration, and those people are honored, and they're seen as very valuable in the church, and I would argue, yes, they are. They're very valuable. They're very important and necessary, okay? And, um, and you know, in, in other charismatic parts of the church, you know, it's more, uh, oh, wow, this person has a gift of healing, and that's really honored, and that's really amazing. And the truth is, I think all these gifts are really impressive. In fact, I, I my take is that I think every single Christian is called to be um, impressive in some sense, okay? And, you know, there's a wide range of how that can be interpreted, so i got to be a little bit careful here, okay? I think any gift, when it's really used in the way that it, it, it is mature and designed to be used, it's so life-giving and so, um, uh, so fruitful in the body of Christ, okay? Whether that's gifts of administration or healing or prophecy, or musical gifts of singing, or speaking gifts, or counseling gifts, or, you know, the the list goes on. There's so, there's a huge variety of gifts. And my paradigm is that, generally speaking, the church is operating at a very, you know, maybe, let's say, 10% of our potential gifting, okay? That's how I see the church. We're operating at, like, something like 10% of our potential gifting. And um, the job of the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints to increase that number, something like that. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the overall paradigm. Okay. Now, where we get into the weeds is, you know, what are, what's the difference between an apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor, teacher, and how do they go about using their gifts? And then the big debate is whether apostles are for today. Okay. Um, I did an episode a while ago on the New Apostolic Reformation. If you go back in the podcast list, you can find that episode where I did a discussion on that topic. Um, the New Apostolic Reformation is, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to quickly define that, but basically it's a bunch of people that believe that apostles are for today. <laughs> and they push that heavily, okay? I I tend to agree with that, okay? I, I think that there are modern-day apostles, okay? Now, where that gets really scary for people is... Um, specifically over the issues, if there's modern-day apostles, can they write new scripture? Okay? My take on that is no. Okay? My take on the scriptures is that the, the, we we were given the scriptures to be a guide for us in this age and that they are completed. Okay? So I would be very skeptical of anybody claiming to be an apostle and claiming to have a level of revelation that would be equal with scriptures. Okay, on a personal level, I do not believe that that is true. But I do recognize that there is a danger there, right? Like, what if you get some super, you know, anointed, respected apostolic figures, and they start teaching, you know, that the scriptures are not closed, and that they can, you know, they, they have received a revelation that should be now treated like scripture, okay? I do think there's a lot of people in the charismatic church that would start believing that. I definitely think that's possible, okay? So I get that there's a danger there, okay? I do, all right? The other big danger is this idea that apostles should be the ones in charge, okay? Like, if you're an apostle, you know, well, that means that you're supposed to be a boss, like the old apostles were, and that all the other leaders in the body should be submitting and listening to these apostles, okay? Um... I get that that's also a danger, <laughs> okay? I, I, will, I will simply say this. 
um, of the people that I feel like have a true apostolic calling on their life and that really function in it, I would say they're the least controlling people that I know, generally speaking. And what I mean is they are the people that, uh, generally speaking, do not expect or try to manipulate or intimidate or anything other people to submit to them. Okay. By the way, I have ran into people who claim to be apostles and and did do that. Okay. <laughs> right, I have run into them. But in my opinion, that that revealed more their immaturity um, because the people that I see that I feel like do have a strong apostolic anointing and gift, they they use that authority to serve and they don't they're not controlling. Okay, simply put. Okay, um, I've read books. There's a book called God's Super Apostles that a professor at Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, wrote, and um, you know it's about the NIR, and you know he accused a number of those figures of basically you know trying to manipulate people to submit to them and 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 stuff like that. And I reading that book honestly really made me mad. It really made me mad. Because it's the same kind of, you know, it's the same kind of stuff that the media does to Trump, right? Where, you know, know, when he says there's very fine people on both sides, right? Speaking of Charlottesville, right? And they go, and they run the story and they tell everybody that, you know, Trump said there's very fine people on both sides, meaning, you know, he supports all these white supremacists in Charlottesville and he called them very fine people when literally like the next line of his speech was like, I am not talking about the white supremacists, like he says in his speech. And they don't report that at all, right? And it's like that, okay? It's like that. That book to me felt like that where they were just trying. He was trying to take every word that these guys speak out of context to, to, to portray them in the worst possible light, okay? That's how I felt when I was reading that book. And that's my problem with a lot of the criticism against the NAR, okay? Um, it, it, this is hard because I'm not trying to, you know, re... I'm not trying to do a whole nother podcast episode on the NAR, but we have to talk about this if we're going to talk about the fivefold because it's 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 the most controversial aspect about this. It's, it's specifically the apostle part. Okay, um, here's my understanding. Okay, my understanding is this: any argument that you used to say that apostles are no, you know, they ceased. All right, the cessationism argument, the argument that's used to say that the gifts of the, of the Spirit have ceased are the exact same arguments that you use to say that, that apostleship has ceased. <laughs> okay? Meaning there's nothing in the Bible that says that it ceased. All right? So you, it, you can't make a biblical argument, in my opinion. All right? In, in my opinion, the, the argument that the gifts have ceased, the, the argument for cessationism, is a very weak biblical argument. It's a very weak biblical argument. Okay? Um, I've covered it before, so I'm not going to cover it in depth on this podcast. I'll simply say that the most popular argument used to be from 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul talks about love, and he talks about how, you know, one day tongues will cease, prophecies will cease, um, you know, and that used to be the, the argument that I would hear most often from cessationists, okay? I almost never hear that argument anymore, okay? For good reason, because it's, it's a terrible argument. Okay, because Paul literally says in, in there in First Corinthians thirteen, he says, "When the perfect comes, that's when they'll cease." And then he describes as, "Then we shall see him face to face." So it's clearly speaking about the return of Christ. Okay, 
When Christ returns, then the gifts will cease. And the reason why is because we won't be using the gifts, which are really first fruits of the Spirit. They're just a small portion of the Spirit's power. That's what the gifts are. Okay, We'll have the full thing when Christ returns because we'll have our full glorified bodies. All right? And so it's not talking about like we're going to have less power. It's talking about how we're going to have far more glory right, than these paltry gifts. Okay, So the cessationist argument is really bad. The, the most common argument that you hear these days about cessationism is that the gifts have ceased because apostles have ceased. That's a far more common argument that I hear today. And that's the argument that John MacArthur and a lot of those guys make. And um, again, the, the, the problem is then you have to define apostle very narrowly. You have to define apostle as one of the original 12, essentially. Okay? Like the 12 disciples um, were the 12 apostles, and there's no more. And, and you have to make the argument essentially that Paul took um, Judas's place. Okay? Um, I, I don't want to say you have to make it exactly that argument, but that's generally the argument that mostly gets made. Okay? Um, but. There, there really is no. Uh, there's, in my opinion, there's not a strong biblical argument that when the Bible speaks about apostles, it's just speaking about the original twelve. Okay, because Barnabas is called an apostle. Okay, Barnabas clearly was not one of the original twelve. Um, and then, you know, the whole idea. You know, many people will say that to be a, an apostle, you have to see Jesus. You know, you have to see the risen Christ, which I would agree with. I would agree with you have to see the risen, risen Christ. Okay. Paul did not see the risen Christ um, in the same sense that the others did. He saw him in a, a, a like a vision um, on the road to Damascus. Okay, and so that really set the template for the calling of apostles after the first century. All right. So it, from my perspective, there is a clear biblical biblical argument for why you can have apostles who are not the original twelve and that exist after the first century. Because Paul is the model that is given. Paul is featured, right? His apostleship is featured in the New Testament, okay? And um, the qualities that he uh, talks about to establish and defend his apostleship, I think those qualities are found in people today, okay? And you do have people today who have claimed to have the same type of encounters with Jesus where they have seen him risen in a line, Okay? Um, and on that basis, I think you could make the argument that there are modern-day apostles that function, you know, in, in the very same authority and anointing, okay? Um, <clears throat> all right. That's me trying to do the controversy on apostles in, like, five minutes. <laughs> it took longer than that, okay? <laughs> so, uh, obviously, this that's not the major point of today's discussion because I would have to go a lot longer on that, okay? Um, I'll, I'll simply say I do think there are modern apostles, I do not think that everybody should want to be an apostle. <laughs> All right. I do think they get overly glorified in, um, you know, in in parts of the charismatic church. You have parts of the charismatic church, especially, you know, um, I, I'm not trying to make it racial, but if we can be honest, okay, parts of the black charismatic church where like everyone's an apostle. <laughs> Okay, like 60% of the congregation are apostles, okay? <laughs> okay, like that type of stuff is, is not healthy, okay? But I understand because, you know, even in places like Bethel and um, in other parts of the charismatic world, they do they do talk a lot about apostles. And if you're going to talk a lot about them and about how important they are to the church and how we need them, then, yeah, of course, you're going to have a lot of people wanting to become apostles and, um, you know, a lot of people claiming to be apostles who probably are not, 
apostles. <laughs> okay, um, one of the you know the the things that I found very helpful in understanding this is that I do believe there's a difference between being called to be an apostle and being commissioned to be an apostle. I think they're those are two different things. Okay, um, I believe it was uh, Bill Hammond. Bill Hammond, um, I read a book of his, I, I read a couple, uh, I think I read more than one of his books. It's, it was a long time ago. I read it in college. Um, so this was like 20 years ago. But he wrote a book called Day of the Saints that talks about some of the stuff that I've been talking about. This this paradigm of how the saints are going to be glorious because they're going to be equipped by the, you know, the fivefold ministers. Um, it's about that. But he, I think in that book, he talks about the difference between the calling of an apostle and the commissioning of an apostle. And um, if I remember correctly, he argues that it is a 20-year minimum training period from calling to commissioning of an apostle. Something like that. In terms of his practice, like he, you know, he generally, he says that he will not recognize somebody as a commissioned apostle who was not called over 20 years ago, something like that. Forgive me, it was, it was a while, it was about 20 years since I read that, so I, I might be misquoting him a little bit, okay? But the general idea, I think, is true, all right? Um, I think there are many people that can be called um, by God to not just be an apostle, but to all sorts of different things. Um, and then you undergo seasons of testing and training until you are finally ready to handle the authority of that calling. Okay, and and I think you do see that. Like a good good biblical examples are Joseph. Right, Joseph receives these dreams where he's ruling over his family. Right, his family's bowing down to him, um, and then he goes through crazy testing <laughs> and training of his character. Right, so from the period of when he receives the dreams to um, when he actually becomes prime minister of Egypt, that's a long time. Okay, it's for sure over ten years. Okay, I, I'm not exactly sure how long. With it. I, I, I want to say it's fifteen years or more. I think it's it, it might be more than that. Okay, um, but you see that right, and you see that also with David, that David is anointed as king um, in his youth. And then he goes through this long period of testing and training of his character um, to where he's finally crowned as king, okay? But that, 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 that's a long period. It's for sure more than 10 years, okay, that David spends in the wilderness running from Saul, learning to honor him and forgive him, you know. Um, it makes sense. I feel like I see that dynamic in Scripture, okay? This long period of calling to commissioning, all right? Um, now, to be clear, with the original apostles, it was not that long. <laughs> it was like, what, three three years, maybe three, four years, right? Um, but they had Jesus. Like, Jesus was the one training them, okay? So, <laughs> I, I don't think it. I don't think it's fair to say, you know, it's a hard and fast rule. There has to be a 20-year period minimum. I, I think that's more Bill Hammond just saying that, generally speaking, that's a good rule of thumb, in terms of the minimum requirement. And and if I remember, he also makes the, the case that there are many people, many people that are called to be apostles that never become commissioned. They do not undergo all the training and character building successfully, and so they never get commissioned as apostles. Um, but the point is, I think he's right in this general paradigm, okay? This general paradigm. Um, Many are called, but few are chosen. 
I think that has something to do with this. Jesus says that two times in the Gospels in two different places. Um, I do think that there's a way that that can be understood that many people are called in positions of callings but never fulfill that calling, right? I think that absolutely happens, okay? And the same way, um, because that's true, I think there's many people that receive legitimate callings um, to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, all five of them. I think they receive legitimate callings, but they never get commissioned into the actual office, right? But they think they are them. Does that make sense? Like, imagine if you got a if you got a legitimate calling from Jesus to be an apostle, and I've called you to be an apostle. You have this encounter with Jesus. I'm sure there's a lot of those people that that got that experience, but they didn't know that there was a difference between calling and commissioning, right? And so they you know started to call themselves apostle, and they started you know they started to tell other people, "Call me an apostle," <laughs> and um and it's not legitimate, and it's not necessarily because they're trying to deceive people, they just don't know. And that's because, that's how immature we are as a body. And my point is this, we don't understand these things that well as a body, all right? So, of course, there's going to be messiness about it. And that's why when people are attacking all the NAR stuff, you know, they point out legitimate weaknesses. They point out real things. But my problem is, is then they go, see, the whole thing is garbage. The whole thing's demonic. The whole thing's deception, Right? And I, I don't think that's the case, okay? I've, you know, dealt a lot with prophecy over the past 20 years, and I can tell you, most prophecy that I've heard in my life, I don't think is true or from the Lord, okay? I think that's the safe thing I can say. Most prophecy that I've heard over the 20 years that I've been, you know, actively involved in prophecy, I don't believe is from the Lord, okay? Um, that doesn't mean that I have not heard true prophecy. I think I have heard a good amount of true prophecy, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, if you have all this false prophecy going on, doesn't that show that there's n- that it's all garbage? And, and my answer is that to that is an astounding and strong no, no, no. Okay, I think it I think it was Mike Bickle that said that he would he would say that about ten percent of the prophecy that he hears he thinks is, is true, truly from the Lord. Okay, now Mike Bickle is going through his own drama right now, so maybe he's not the best example to use. But my point is simply this: that I I think that you know when he taught that, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, I think that that's right. You know, like ten percent is pretty low. <laughs> I I think I would probably put a little higher than ten percent, maybe like twenty percent. <laughs> okay, but the point is still most of the prophecy that I hear is not. I don't think is 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 genuinely from God, right? Or you know, I can receive prophecy that. I think some parts might be from the Lord and some parts I think are not, right? That happens too, right? It's very difficult, okay, to discern true prophecy. And so there's a lot of people that, you know, might hear that and be like, then it's, you know, it's it's safer to not deal with prophecy. And I would argue, no, that's not true. Because even if only 10% of the prophecy that I've heard is actually from God, I will say that 10% has borne so much incredible, amazing fruit. All right. It's it's the same it's the same to me as arguing like, well, look at all of these pastors teaching all of these crazy teachings. Right? And then you were to go, it's better just not to study the Bible. <laughs> or it's better not to hear sermons. Okay. And my answer is no. No. Even if most Bible teaching that you hear today is is not right. And by the way, I I don't think 
it, 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 that's true. Okay, I would argue that most Bible teaching that you hear today has a lot of truth in it. It's just that you have to learn to discern the parts that are not true and not listen to those parts. Okay, and that that same principle works with prophecy. Although I would argue that the body of Christ is less mature in prophecy than it is in biblical preaching. Okay, we've been practicing biblical preaching for a long time. Okay, we've not been wholeheartedly practicing prophecy to the same degree and held in the same honor and esteem for that whole time. So we're less mature in prophecy. So it's harder. Okay, so getting back to my original point. When we talk about people who claim to be apostles and prophets, are many of those people very immature? My answer would be yes, absolutely. Okay. One, I think one one of the the most difficult things is you can have people that are extremely gifted with a genuine gift that's from God, and the fruit can be very mixed. The fruit can be very mixed. Okay, and that's what I tend to find. And by the way, it works the exact same way with leadership. I know some phenomenal leaders, very strong leaders, but their fruit is very mixed, right? They built some great things and they destroy some things. You know? And and that's because all gifts work like that. Okay? The 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 power of your gifting will determine your influence or effectiveness to some degree, but your character will determine how long it lasts. Something like that. Okay, if you have great character, what you build lasts a long time, maybe eternally, right? But you need both, in my opinion. You need to to hone your gift so that your gift is strong, and you need to hone your character so that your fruit lasts. Okay, that's a really bare bones kind of way to look at it, but I think that's a generally true principle. Okay, and my point is this: I've known a lot of very um, prophetic people that clearly we're hearing from the spiritual realm, okay? Like, they're clearly hearing from the spiritual realm. But one of the dangers that I always, you know, try to warn prophetic people about is, is look, it's a huge danger that when you hear really well from the spiritual realm, that, the, you know, the enemy will try to get in some words and make it sound like God. And a lot of very prophetic people will communicate words that are not from God, but they could be from other spirits, and they, and they don't realize that. They don't know that, Okay. And in my opinion, that happens a lot, okay? In my opinion, <laughs> okay? But I, again, uh, my paradigm of this whole thing is we're operate, we're uh, like 10% maturity in the body of Christ. So I'm I'm part of that 10%, meaning there's a lot of words that if, if I, uh, I'm like, mm, I, I don't think all of that is from the Lord. But in humility, I've said, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I could definitely be wrong. I'm just doing my best. Okay, I'm doing my best to discern what is from the Lord, what's not from the Lord, but I've surely been wrong about a lot of things. Okay, just like in the same way that as a pastor, I preach a lot of sermons, I'm sure that when I get to heaven, the Lord will be like, You were wrong about this part of your sermon, you'll be wrong. I'm sure there's going to be things like that. Okay, I'm just praying for mercy <laughs> that I would not teach a lot of wrong stuff. But again, uh, you know, I, I said this before, but if you put 10 pastors in a room and ask them 10 different theological questions, you're going to get answers all over the board. We can't all be right. <laughs> right? Like, just objectively speaking, we know that there's a lot of wrong theology that we have, but we just don't know which ones are wrong. Okay? And on the Day of Judgment, we're going to find out. Okay? So, in humility, I think we have to have humility towards all of this. All right? And what I'm getting at here is that just because 
we have lots of immature prophets or people called to be prophets who claim to be prophets and are not actual prophets yet, <laughs> okay? Just because there's a lot of immaturity in the five-fold mission does not mean that the whole thing is garbage, okay? And look, the only parts that are controversial in the church, generally speaking, are the prophets and the apostle parts, okay? Almost every part of the church that I'm familiar with recognizes that there are pastors, teachers, and evangelists, right? Like, that's pretty non-controversial, okay? We might hesitate to put a title like that, right? But we, we you know, we call everybody pastor now. That's clearly not biblically correct, <laughs> okay? Like, <laughs> are all pastors actual or, like, biblically ordained pastors? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not, Right? Because then that'd be so unbalanced. <laughs> what about the teachers and the evangelists, at least, right? If we're talking, if we're using a biblical paradigm here. No, no, no. We, we call them pastor out of tradition, right? But the real biblical term is elder, okay? Um, the pastors in our churches, the biblical term for their office is elder, right? We should call them elders if we were being biblically correct, okay? Um pastor refers to a specific type of elder that is anointed and gifted in a certain way, all right? And if we were more biblically correct, we would, you know, use the term elder, and then we'd refer to some of the elders as pastors because that's their area of anointing and gifting, okay? But the point is we're, we're really far from that. We don't even try to <laughs> distinguish that kind of thing, okay? I would simply say that I think it is actually helpful to recognize different leaders in the body of Christ where their area of anointing is. I think it's super helpful to recognize this, okay? Um, because what it, it does a couple different things for you. What it does is it helps you identify where this leader has real grace from God and authority and where they don't, <laughs> okay? Because one of the, the most common problems for pastors is that we feel like we have to wear all the hats, like, you know, as a pastor, I've said this before, but a lot of times you feel like you've got to be good at everything, right? You have to be like an amazing public speaker. You have to be an amazing counselor. You have to be an amazing business leader. You got to be an amazing theologian. Like, it's just too many hats. <laughs> like, nobody, nobody is good at all those things. It's a, and, and we're not supposed to be, okay? So it's it's helpful if we can recognize the area of our own strength then we can, first of all, entrust others with leadership and authority in our churches to help us in our area of weaknesses, okay? But I also find it's, it's helpful for all the people in the church also to understand you, you're, you can't get everything you need from your local church. I'm sorry, you can't, okay? Generally speaking, local churches tend to be led by pastors or teachers, okay? Generally speaking. Okay, if we're going to, again, we're talking about the lowest level of discernment here, okay? <laughs> okay, if you want to look at a local, you know, uh, church leader, do they really care about theology? Okay, do, is that super important to them? If it is, they're most likely in the teacher category. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or do they tend to really care about people? Okay, then they're most likely in the pastor category. All right, those are the two most common type of church leaders that we have. All right, those are pastors and teachers. Okay, um, and then you do have some evangelists. You have some leaders that really care about seeking, reaching the lost and mobilizing their people to do that. 
okay? But they're less common as local church pastors, okay? Those people tend to be more involved in parachurch ministries, like missions organizations, um, you know, campus fellowships where they're doing more uh, focus on reaching the lost rather than having to actually counsel people and pastor people because you, you bog down. So that's why a lot of parachurch organizations, you know, like InterVarsity, Crew, those types of campus ministries, they don't want to do, they don't want to be a local church. They want to work alongside the local church so that the local church can handle the pastoral and doctrinal, you know, uh, needs of the church. And they can just focus on the more missional components of it, right? And t- specifically in terms of reaching the lost, okay? That's a healthy partnership. That's good. That's necessary because a lot of local churches are really poor at evangelism, okay? And and that's because the leader may not have that anointing, all right? Now, to be clear, just because you don't have anointing doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you won't you won't be like great at it or great at equipping others to do it. All right, and I don't know about you, but for me as a pastor, I can tell you, I am not an evangelist. <laughs> okay, I suck at evangelism. <laughs> so as as a as a local pastor, what I try and do is empower other leaders that are gifted in that area to be able to help lead, because I need the help. And by the way, it's not just evangelism. There's so many different areas where I'm weak in, and so I try to empower others, and I try to partner with other ministries. And this is the, the second aspect that I think is really important about understanding this paradigm. What this paradigm can do is help you understand that your local church is is not enough in the sense that you're supposed to receive ministry from people outside of your local church. Because generally speaking, you know your local church might be really good at caring for people or it might be really good at teaching doctrine, or it might be really good at um, you know prophecy, because there are some local churches that are led by prophets too. Okay, the the healthiest churches, in my opinion, are the ones that empower different members of the fivefold to be effective leaders in their local congregation, but also that partner with other ministries that are strong in the areas where they have weaknesses locally. That's important to me. I think, like, if, like, what is a healthy church? There are a lot of components of a healthy church. Um, one of the components of a, of, a, of a healthy church is that they, they partner with other ministries in the areas where they're weak. So a lot of churches do this, for example, by partnering with missions organizations, right? That's healthy, okay? Like, it's healthy to partner with a missions organization. Hey, we don't have great missionary leaders here in our local community, so we're going to partner with YWAM or with you know, frontiers or whatever, some missions organization work together with them because they have great, you know, apostolic or evangelistic leaders that can help train our people and we can send them via that way, right? That's healthy or we invite them to speak, right? We invite other people to speak in our ministry uh, because they're carrying anointings that we don't have so strong here in our local community. And that's just humility. That's humility for le- for local pastors to recognize I don't have all the strengths that are needed to to equip our saints in a healthy manner. So it's healthy for me to partner with other pastors, with other leaders at other churches, with other parachurch organizations. That's very healthy because then then my people receive ministry in an area where I can't give it to them. Okay? And in my opinion, that is one of the most important necessary things that leaders need to do. Learn to partner, not to feel threatened by other leaders. And, and this is part of the problem, you know, um, in, that is very common in churches where leaders are insecure about their weaknesses. And so they're afraid that if they do a joint event with another church, 
right, or another parachurch ministry or whatever, then they'll lose people and people will want to go over there because they'll be impressed with that leader's strengths. And I, I really advocate that we see it differently than that. We're one body. We're on the same team, okay? And yes, it might be true, right? Maybe you, you partner with a missions organization and then you have one of your people at your church, a leader, just because like, man, I just felt so alive on the mission field and I felt like I was calling me to, to work with this other ministry. That for, should be cause for rejoicing for us as local pastors. We should be like, thank God. Why? Because this sheep that God has entrusted with our care, they're now receiving you know, leadership and guidance in an area that they never would have found if it wasn't for our helping them find this area that may be really important for their general development and growth or maybe just for the season to help them grow in the season. Okay? Why? Because we're on the same team. Okay? Just because one of our members gets involved in a parachurch ministry or an, a, another ministry and and feels like God's calling them to do it, that's not a loss. That's a win. Okay? Would might your church get a little bit smaller? Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Right? Sometimes it's, we're called to increase and sometimes we're called to decrease. The, the, we shouldn't look at absolute numbers as the barometer of our success. It's not. It's, it's are our people bearing fruit in their lives. Okay? That is the calling for local church leaders. It's not the size of the organization. It's the fruitfulness of the people. All right. And if we're serious about that, then we should be partnering with other ministries such that our people can grow. Because look, I, let me put it to you this way. If I, as a church leader, I, if I suck at evangelism, if, I, if my anointing evangelism is very low, what's going to happen to the people that are called or gifted in evangelism? They're not going to be able to grow in my church. So what are they going to do? They're going to find other churches. Okay, but what if I partner regularly with a parachurch ministry, where they can use the gift that God's given them, and where they can grow in it through mentorship or or, or following the example of, of other leaders that they're working with? That's a win. That is a win for our church, and it makes my church more healthy because now all the people that are gifted in evangelism are not leaving, right? Because we need them too in our local body. Okay, but now they're able to thrive in their gift, right? But here, but have a place of leadership here. Now they can become leaders in this church where they're actually training up other people to be effective in evangelism. That is healthy. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to function. Ideally, every local church would have all members of the fivefold operating in house. I think maybe that's ideal. Okay? We're just so far from that. All right, we're so far from that place. Okay, I, I highly respect other ministries that are are trying to do that. You know, I, I just don't think we should have a, a feel and need. It it doesn't all have to fit in the context of one local of one local church. It doesn't. It's okay to partner with other ministries. That's healthy. That's good, in my opinion. Okay, and it's good for us as Christians to recognize: Hey, as great as your local pastor might be, he might be a phenomenal teacher. Might be so caring for people. Right. But he can't give you, he or she can't give you everything that you need. It's healthy to be able to go to conferences, to be able to partner with missions organizations, whatever. The body of Christ is diverse and vast. And it's healthy to be able to receive from one another. The only the only problem is because the body is so diverse, sometimes we turn against each other. You know what I mean? Like, you go to the missions organizations, and, the, and at the missions organizations, they go, oh man, local churches suck, right? They're so lukewarm. They never reach the, they never reach people for Christ, right? Everybody should get out of there, right? And then they poison <laughs> you against, you know, your your local church back home. That, I get. It's That's not healthy, all right? That's so unfortunate when that kind of stuff happens, okay? But 
in my opinion, what we should be doing is training our people to be able to discern such that they can work with other ministries and other and, and draw from them, right, without it becoming dishonoring towards anyone. Okay? Ideally what we want to train people to do is is recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of all the various parts of the body of Christ, all the various leaders of the body of Christ, such that we can learn and receive from their good strengths, and then we can say no and reject their bad weaknesses. Right, and then what we're doing is, is we're helping create really healthy, balanced people that have a, a a a value for all the diversity of the body of Christ as it's supposed to be, and that's what Paul is 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 talking about here, in Ephesians four. The we're one body, but we're diverse in terms of our expression, in terms of our in terms of our gifting, in terms of our calling. Okay, um, it's not a bad thing when a church is very strong in doctrine. That's what they specialize in. That's not a bad thing. Okay, it's a bad thing if they if they are teaching their people doctrine is the most important thing, and you don't need anything else in the Bible. Christ, you don't need to evangelize, <laughs> right? You don't need to care for people. Well, then it's a bad thing. Okay, then and then I would argue that's not good doctrine. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but it's okay if, if if a local church is is very strong in the area of doctrine. That's what their primary gifting is. They're specializing in that. So long as they partner with and invite other leaders in and, and they're working with other b- members of the body such that they're specializing in their area of strength, but they're not cutting off their people from all the er- areas of strength that they need in the rest of the body of Christ. Okay, That's why it's so important that we be unified in all of this. All right, the last thing I want to talk about is you know, understanding the the roles of the fivefold ministry. So obviously there's differences between the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. And we've talked about some of those differences, specifically between pastors and teachers, because these are the people that generally lead churches. Okay. Um, now prophets come in all varieties. You do have some prophets that are, that are leading local churches. Um, and that happens more obviously in, in, in more charismatic circles and then, you know, those communities tend to be very um, prophetic. There's a lot of, um, you know, people hearing from God and whatnot. Um, and then you have um, prophets that are not involved in leading at all, right? And this is what we see in um, the Old Testament. There are some prophets that really just are focused on just giving messages when they get them, right? And they can be doing a, a, something. Some of them are you know, involved in houses of prayer. Some of them are, you know, working jobs, but then they get messages from the Lord and they obey that. Some of them are itinerant ministers. Um, there's definitely prophets that are around. And then there's apostles, right? We already talked about apostles being the, you know, most um, controversial office. I do believe there are apostles around. Some of them are leading local churches. Um, you know, the apostolic anointing, um, I see it as kind of twofold. There's two main aspects that I, um, when I think about the apostolic, that I think of. And one is um, this idea of, you know, apostle really means just one who is sent. The best way to understand it is it is kind of like an ambassador, all right? Like they represent a government, one who's sent by a government to represent them, okay? And that's really the sense in which Paul speaks about being an apostle, right? So they are invested with authority, um, but the idea is that there is a a mission to it, right? So what we see is that Paul had a mission to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations, and he was really driven 
on that mission and given authority to accomplish that particular mission. I tend to think that that is how several many apostles function in that they can be um, oftentimes pioneers with a mission to go into you know certain region as, as missionaries um, or certain uh, segments of society like you can have business leaders who have apostolic anointings I think um, and and whatnot okay and then um, the second aspect of being an apostle is really like a spiritual father. Okay, a spiritual father, and um, you see that in Paul's ministry also, right? That he um, has a real fathering um, anointing to him, where he's you know concerned about the churches like they're his children, right? And um, you know, I think that spiritual fathering anointing is definitely part of the apostolic anointing. Now, you know, there have been books written on all of this stuff. Um, so I'm really just giving some of the major elements that I think are important in understanding kind of a broad picture of the fivefold and why it's important. Okay. Um, the reason why I'm trying to give this is because I do feel like it is helpful for individual Christians to understand these things. Okay. First of all, I, we don't, you don't need to be part of the fivefold. Okay. Um, I never got a you know, a word from the Lord saying, I've called you, Dennis, as a pastor, and in the, in the sense of a fivefold anointing, I obviously did feel like the Lord um, called me to be in ministry. And, um, but, you know, if I had to put a finger on if I, if I am a fivefold minister, you know, which one I am, I probably align closest with the teaching um, anointing. But I don't feel like this burden or pressure to identify as one or the other or even to identify as any of them and that's because honestly I, I don't think it matters that much okay there's some communities that put a huge emphasis on knowing your role and your calling and um and i i do agree that there are things that are helpful about that right i think it's helpful to know hey i'm i feel like god has gifted me in this area or called me in this area because what, then what we understand is that there's a grace about doing those types of activities right and all of us want to maximize our effectiveness by by focusing on the areas where the lord has given us grace in our lives so in that sense i do understand that it can be helpful to understand where you're gifted where you're called what you're good at what you're not good at i think there there is a general you know, that's a good thing to know, okay? Um, on the other hand, I've always resisted this idea that, you know, like I, I don't put that much stock in like um, personality tests or like strength finders or um, Myers-Briggs, those types of personality tests. And it's not because I don't think there are some benefits to it. I do. I think there are real benefits. I think I just also recognize that there can be dangers. And the dangers are that sometimes we can pigeonhole ourselves in one specific lane and be like, okay, this is what I'm good at and not have an expectation that I can be good at other things. And, um, and, and that's the part that I feel like it can be a little bit dangerous about that type of understanding, right? Um, look, my understanding of the fivefold ministry is that if the church was mature, then the way it would work is that all the saints would operate in some degree of the prophetic, some degree of teaching, some degree of of pastoral ability, right? It doesn't mean that all of our gifts would be equal in all these in all these ways, but the point is that the the fivefold ministers are supposed to equip the body with all their anointings, right? Um, and so I I don't think it's helpful to limit ourselves too much. And and you know when I when I teach on spiritual gifts, I try to encourage people not to think of oh I might have one gift or two gifts. The way I teach it is you might be gifted in twenty things, maybe 30 potential gifts inside of you. 
And my paradigm is not that you can be amazingly good at all of those. It's that you have the potential to be good at all of those, um, but you have to put in the work to develop all of these various aspects of potential gifting. So when I, you know, when I teach on spiritual gifts, I always encourage people to try everything, especially like, you know, if you're new to the spiritual gifts or you're young, I tell, I, I tell people, try to do everything. Try to heal the sick. <laughs> try to prophesy, right? Try to speak in tongues, even if you feel like you're just making it up. <laughs> I'm not saying claim that it's tongues. <laughs> I'm just saying try, you know? Like, um, my, my point is this. It's much better to try and to fail, and sometimes repeatedly so, than it is to never try, because then you'll, you'll never succeed. So, you know, I don't have a problem with people trying. You know, uh, evangelism is a good one, right? Like... The reason why I know I'm, I'm pretty bad at evangelism is because I've tried quite a bit. <laughs> okay, and to be clear, I'm not saying that I have, I do not have the potential to eventually be very good at evangelism. I think there's definitely a potential there. Okay, I'm not going to stop trying. Um, but my point is simply this: you know, we can get better than we think at some at things, right? And and you never know how much potential um, really is there unless it's serious. There's a serious attempt to develop it. You know, when I when I talk to um, people that are interested in music, I tell people, I think I think about 80% of people have the ability to be musical, like very musical, right? To be to be considered gifted in an instrument or singing or something like that. I think it's very high. I think most people can be musical. Um, but obviously you have to train it, you know? You got to train it. And some people are totally tone deaf. And for those people, you know, you probably can't be a, a singer, <laughs> like a great singer, but, but you could be a great drummer, <laughs> right? Like th- there's a reason why Asians g- all play the piano, you know, <laughs> it's not because we have the gift of piano. <laughs> I say that about math too, right? It's, you know, why are Asians so good at math? It's not because Asians have the gift of math, all right? It's because their parents make them do it. <laughs> You, and you can get pretty far off somebody making you do something over and over again, especially when you're younger, right? So um, my only point is this. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, it's healthy for me to go, oh, you know what? I'm, I've, I've never, you know, I've never had a prophetic calling. I've never been called as a prophet. So, you know, I, I don't think I can really do the prophecy thing or, you know, I don't, I don't think God can ever use me in a great way. Maybe I can do some minor prophecy stuff here or there, but I don't think God can ever use me in a great way. Um, I would just simply say this, hey, like God can do anything through us, right? And I think that there are gifts and grace that we have that we'll, we'll notice that we're more effective in certain areas than others. I think that's true for all of us, but let's not limit how God can develop us and how God can call us, right? I always think, you know, when I, when I read the scriptures that, um, you know, it it would have made way more sense for Paul to be called as the apostle to the Jews. Like, that guy was an expert in Jewish law, <laughs> right? He was an expert in Judaism. Um, and yet God calls him to be apostle to the Gentiles, right? And then, you know, Peter, who's, you know, the untrained fisherman... You know, I, I I probably thought he probably would have been a better pick for the for the Gentiles. <laughs> he's not so like heady, you know. <laughs> you know, he's not so like intellectually driven and all kinds. You know, maybe he would have been a better match. But my my point is simply this: sometimes God can call us in areas where we don't necessarily feel um, gifted yet, right? But there is such a thing as developing new gifts or receiving impartation, right? Um, I think we're 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 called to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that we may prophesy. And so, I think desiring um, new graces on our life, new gifts in our life, I think that's a good, that's a healthy desire, 
right? And we should try. Um, try to do it. It doesn't mean you have to kill yourself trying to do something that's impossible for you. But I simply say, like, don't limit yourself by thinking, oh, since I believe I'm gifted or called in this area, I, I can't do this over here. I don't think that's good. Don't Let's not limit ourselves like that. Um, and then all being said, it's okay, you know, if you're not called to be an apostle or a prophet or a pastor or a teacher and evangelist, um, I, I really think the times we're coming into, I think if we were operating the way that it's supposed to be, the impressive people in our, you know, in our churches would not just be the, the, the ministry leaders. It's, it can be like that in a lot of churches, right? Where you've got like an amazing speaker who's the, the pastor, and you've got an amazing worship leader, and then, you know, we, we go to church and, and we get ministered to by these people, and we're like, wow, it's so great. And then other people are trying to do it, but nobody's quite as good as them at it. You know, I think the way it's really supposed to look is that the, imagine if all the saints were super gifted with a variety of giftings, right? And they were f- they were functioning in them fully and um and it was it was such a team effort, you know. Man, I I think that's a picture of what it's supposed to look like and where God wants to bring the church. And so my only encouragement for um believers is firstly uh, try and recognize where your pastor is gifted in, right? For some of our pastors, um they're phenomenal speakers, okay? And um, there's different kinds of speakers too, right? Um, maybe they're really good at, you know, Im- like imparting the love of God. You feel so loved and encouraged. You know, when I think of like people like Joel Osteen, I, I think of that type of thing, right? And he would, he would, I think, say something similar to that, right? That he feels called to, to preach grace to people, okay? Well, from my perspective, I think he probably has a real gift there, okay? Um, now... I have to confess, I'm not that familiar with Joel Osteen's teachings. I have heard some stuff that I'm really not comfortable with. So I would say that, you know, Joel Osteen, in my opinion, should also be careful to, even though he might major in grace, like that's maybe his major message, but he should not neglect, you know, holiness and judgment and, and things like that. And, um, you know, if I had to guess... I, I would guess that that might be an area of weakness for him, okay? And obviously some people go a lot farther and say that he's a heretic and all this kind of stuff. I, I, I'm not familiar enough with his ministry to really know one way or the other. I'm just trying to give a broad overview, okay? Um, but my point is, you know, trying to identify where your pastor is, is gifted and, and, you know, appreciate him for that, but also recognize where, you know, he's not gifted and recognize that you can find other places to get some of that grace, right? Like if your church is not a very prophetic church, well, I, I have good news. There's lots of ministries all around you know, the country that do a lot of prophetic stuff, right? When I was pastoring um, in Berkeley, we used to have um, prophecy nights. I forget if it was like Tuesday or Thursday. I forget the night, but we'd have like prophecy nights and, and they were just open and um, there weren't that many other churches in the region that were doing that type of ministry. And so people just started coming. They'd bring, you know, friends, and um and then yeah we'd spend time and we'd prophesy over them and I think it you know I think it was a real blessing for a lot of people, um but I I respect that you know they didn't have to be part of my church they just came you know just to receive prophetic ministry, and um and that's that's a real blessing right but only people who are kind of hungry for that are willing to go outside of their local church and and you know and and find that kind of stuff but I you know I think that's healthy I think it's healthy 
All right. Um, as you know, pastor, I always try and get involved with local houses of prayer. I go to a prayer room right now. I'm not, you know, part of the leadership there or anything. I just go there just to receive from the grace and the anointing that, that they have there. Right. So, um, there's lots of ways to do this. Conferences, going to conferences, going to um, missions trips with missions organizations, um, you know, just partnering with um, local ministries that are serving the poor, right? Um, volunteering, you know, at soup kitchens and whatnot, right? These are these are ministries, parachurch ministries, many of them, that um, focus on a specific mission. But those are those are perfect for Christians to get involved with, and I think um, that can be really healthy if, if I can recognize, wow, you know, my church is, is not that great at serving the poor, um, but I, I feel like there's an importance there, and so you find and join up with another ministry that's doing that. You know, I think that's a great thing. I think that's really healthy. And I don't think every local church should feel an obligation to try to be great at everything. That's impossible, right? And I'll confess that, you know, as a younger leader, I didn't understand this dynamic. And so sometimes I would get frustrated with, um, you know, my local church or fellowship because I could see a major area of weakness. I'm like, hey, we've got to do that. But I just didn't recognize, hey, if the leaders don't have grace in that area, they can't just make a new ministry. <laughs> you know, like... You know, like, just because I th- I have a burden, like, man, we should be, you know, reaching our high schools for Jesus, you know? But, you know, maybe the the people that don't have a, a grace to really do evangelism on high school campuses. And, you know, what I can do is I can pressure them and in, 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 in an unhealthy and, and, frankly, ungodly way, right? Or I can just seek the Lord and be like, Lord, how, how can I do this? And maybe I can partner with a, a group called One Voice, or you know, maybe I can bring it up to the pastors and see if they're willing to take a step in that direction. But it, it's really not good when we, uh, when we um, disparage or pressure our leaders in ways um, that maybe God has not given them grace to do that. Right, and this is something that you know, you you come to understand as a leader. Like I, as a pastor at a church, I can't do everything that people want me to do. There's like a million things that every local church could be doing, right? We could have an extravagant, you know, Christmas musical, <laughs> but it it would take so much effort and expense and cost, and so. I, and I've got to think about it. Could I help put on an extravagant Christmas musical? And the honest answer is no. <laughs> right? Like I would suck trying to make that ministry happen at my church, right? Like Hillsong can do that, and they've got the people and the resources to be able to do that amazingly well, right? And, and good for them. That's that's awesome. I'm, I'm I'm glad that that expression exists in the body of Christ, right? But it's a very, it's a very bit of a different thing if you go to and see Hill songs and then you go, man, why doesn't our church have that, right? And then you're mad at me as the pastor, <laughs> right? Like, I, obviously, I'm, I'm giving kind of a funny example here, but there's like a million different things that that could be, right? Like maybe you, you wish like the the worship was more powerful, or maybe you wish, you know, um, they had a ministry for single mothers, or you know, there's like a million things that churches can do. And, you know, this is part of, of growing in our personal leadership is recognizing, okay, where do our leaders have, have grace to operate? And if we feel like, hey, maybe they would have grace. Maybe, you know, I have this burden for this single mother's ministry. I feel like the church needs to do more to serve single mothers. Um, hey, maybe that's something I could bring up to my pastors. Maybe they have a grace in this area. Maybe they, they'd be open to that, right? That's okay to float like, hey, what do we think about potentially doing something for the single mothers in the area? That's a great that's a great step of leadership, right? Um but then let the leaders pray and consider it, right? And if they come back to you and say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think that's something that we can do right now, right? Well, just honor that, you know, honor that, right? What you don't want to do is get into this place of resentment 
and bitterness and be like, oh my gosh, these people, they don't, they don't care about single mothers at all. <laughs> right. That's because like, you know, <laughs> like I said, there's like a million things that every church could be doing and, and every church is constrained by the the leaders and the leadership that they have at their church and by the resources that they have. Okay. I mean, I'm sure every church would love to do so many more things um, if they had the people who could help lead those things. Right. And that's oftentimes what it comes down to. So, um, Understanding these dynamics is, is I think, very important. And this is my, I'm going to just close on this. My encouragement is try try to get ministry from every one of the major fivefold anointings if you can. Okay? If you can recognize, wow, my, my church does pastoring really well. I just feel really cared about, you know, at my church. And we have a great community. And um, and that's great. But, you know, I feel like we're, we're not doing much in terms of missions. Right? And I feel like this, you know, I feel like that's important and our church isn't doing it. Well, my encouragement is, you know, we'll see if then, if you can take some steps to work with a local mission or maybe go on a, a summer mission with YWAM or some other missions organization, right? Maybe, um, you know, maybe listen on YouTube, find some missionaries on YouTube and listen to their heart, right? Uh, for missions so that to, to grow your own heart, okay? Um, my only point is this, there's so many um, amazing ministries out there. There's so many amazing ministries. And if we were mature, then every Christian would have easy access to all the great ministries out there. But the problem is we're so divided and disunited and um, scattered that it can be hard to find the effective ministry that's out there that, that you need. But I, I tell you, it's it's almost certainly out there to some degree, right? Um, and so getting a healthy diet, in my opinion, of the rest of the body of Christ is really so important for most Christians. I think most Christians should, you know, get help from outside of your local church, right? Read read books, listen to YouTube, listen to podcasts, right? Um, volunteer, you know, with, with parachurch organizations occasionally, okay? There's, there's so many amazing ways to do it. The only problem is you have you kind of have to go looking for it. So I would simply just say this, you know, whatever you feel like God's calling you um, to grow in in this season, ask him to lead you, you know, to some effective resources or effective ministries um, that could help teach you in that area, grow you in that area, or that could be an expression of your service, right? Man, maybe you feel like you've got a gift or you want to be gifted in a certain area, but there's no place um, to really grow in that in your in your local church. Well, ask the Lord to lead you. You know, maybe there's something else in your city or maybe there's something online, you know. Um, that would be my encouragement. And in this way, what we do is we grow in an appreciation for the wider body of Christ, right? This is essential to the church, that we love the various parts of the church. All of them are going to have weaknesses, let me be clear. Every parachurch ministry has weaknesses, okay? And every local church ministry has weaknesses also. We all have weaknesses, Okay, um, but in in this generation, um, I believe we're called to love and honor the various aspects of Christ's body. Right, the eye cannot say to the hand, "I don't need you." No, I desperately need the hand. Right, I'm so thankful for the hand. Right, and I'm thankful for the eye. And in this way, um, we personally grow. This is really one of the greatest ways to grow ourselves is to make sure we're getting a healthy diet of the fivefold anointings in the body. Okay, if I can rec if you can recognize, wow, my diet of, e you know, evangelical, um, excuse me, evangelism anointing is is really low. 
well, maybe it's a, it's a good time to go on YouTube and listen to some evangelists, right? Grow that heart if you can recognize, man, I feel like I've been neglecting this aspect. Um, this is really one of the ways that it really helps us grow up healthy in a very healthy manner. And likewise, or conversely, if we only partake of one anointing, if all we know is teaching, for example, right? I say this again to somebody who is who loves teaching, right? I feel like that's maybe, maybe my strongest anointing. Um, I love doctrine and teaching and all this kind of stuff, but it, we can get really unhealthy when we don't when we don't draw from the other anointings in the body of Christ, okay? We get too focused on doctrine. We think it's of the ultimate importance, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, and we start arguing. This is what happens in seminaries, right? You start arguing about the most minor doctrines, <laughs> okay? And there's lots of ways that, that that can happen, right? If you If you are part of a very evangelistic church, okay, what can happen is you can start to judge the other parts of the body and be like, oh my gosh, they don't care about the lost, right? That's because they're not real Christians. You know, we can get into that place of real dishonor towards the other parts of the body and stuff like that um, when we can recognize very real weaknesses, okay? All right, I hope all that makes sense, and um, I hope that the Lord would lead us to a greater love, a greater unity in the body, and that we would work as one for the purpose of his kingdom. And I do have great hope that um, as we continue more into this age, that the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the evangelists, and the teachers will be honored more and more um, in their rightful role, which is to equip the body for the works of service so that each part is doing its work, so that every saint is operating in their tr- in their real gifting in a way that um, is bearing um, eternal and lasting fruit in the body. Amen. God bless.